we've been working through the Alliance DNA for the last number of weeks, and we're going to continue this morning, but we have a guest speaker. This last week, I want to say thank you. I took the week off, and I taught at Horizon College. It was a great time there, but you know, it was a busy and a full time. It was a modular unit at Horizon College, and, and kind of my tank is empty. And so earlier on, I knew this would happen, and I uh, emailed the, the district office, and I said, hey, is somebody there that could come and cover this Sunday for me? Because I, I'm, I think my tank is going to be empty when Sunday comes. You know, I'm full in the area of emotions and everything, but, you know, just uh, a whole week of, of talking, and you're thinking, Pastor, that can't wear you out. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, so, so I contacted and Chris Smith from the district office uh, said, returned the email, said, sure, I'd love to be. Chris Smith is part of our district office. I'm going to say most of you have never met Chris before. Chris is new at the district office. In fact, he is the newest member at the district office. And so, uh, so good to have him here. He's married to Joanne, and he's the father to Jack, 17, Harry, 15, and Penelope, right? Penelope, Penelope, there we are. I should have asked my wife how to pronounce the name ahead of time, right? You know, I was just going by the letters type of thing. Okay, and she's 12. And uh, Chris has been at, at uh, the Bridge Church in Winnipeg for, for many years, 20 20 years in this district, and so, so good. So we've crossed paths at district conference. We've crossed paths at workers' retreat and other times through the year. Chris, come on up. Um, I don't know how much more I should say. Transformers. He, he collects transformers, and so that's good. I love that. There's, there's a kid in them, and, and that's good. Thank <laughs> you. Let me pray, and then I'm going to turn the pulpit over to Chris, and he's going to talk to us about, first he's going to tell us about the district and stuff like that, right? But then Christ, our Savior, our Alliance DNA, the fourfold gospel. Okay, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Father, again, we would ask for your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon Chris, Lord. And Father, that uh, you would guide and direct him in the very words he says, Lord. And then, Father, that your Holy Spirit would take those words and apply them into our lives where they need to be, Lord. And so we give you thanks for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. There. Joy to be here with you at Westgate. Um, as Frank said, my name's Chris Smith, and I am part of the team at your district ministry center in Regina, uh, where I serve as the assistant district superintendent for personnel and resource development, which is just a very impressive way of saying that I'm in charge of the licensing and ordaining of our pastors. Um, I bring you greetings today from our district superintendent, the Reverend Dr. Bernie Vandewall, and from your 72 sister congregations in the Canadian Midwest District. You are part of a big family, and they are all really cold this morning. So um, you are not alone in your suffering. We are suffering for Jesus together in this cold part of the world. Um, 
The Canadian Midwest District is the heartland of the alliance in Canada, uh, and I think it is the part of the country in which we get the best stories of what God has done um, and some of the best opportunities of what God can do in the future, and we are looking forward to that. On the screen right now, you see a slide. Um, that is our District Ministry Center team. That's the new album we just dropped, by the way, our sophomore LP. Um, we got a lot of comments. We use that picture for our Christmas card, and uh, people saying, so when's the album dropping? And so I just leaned into it. Um, you know, straight out of Regina. This is the District Ministry Center team. And on there you see um, many of the people who help make the work of the district run um, in the alliance in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, a little bit of northern Ontario, and up into Nunavut. Uh, we are the largest geographic um, measured uh, district in the country. We are the, the uh, even though we are the Midwest, as Bernie Van de Waal is fond of saying, we are the district with the most coastline. And uh, look it up, it's true. Um, and we are excited to be part of the family together. There are some names up there that you may or may not know, some people who are familiar. In the back there, you see uh, Bernie Van de Waal, our district superintendent. Next to him, you see Richard Enns, uh, another one of our assistant district superintendent. And then there are the two new guys. And uh, updates and changes in the district. Um, this summer, we went through some change. Uh, Reverend Ron Gertzen, who many of you have met and know and have come to love, um, took his well-deserved retirement. Um, and in June, he stepped out of his position as assistant district superintendent. And shortly following behind him, Reverend Paul Enns, who many of you also know, um, transitioned out of the district office and back into local church ministry. He's now the lead pastor of our Strasbourg Alliance Church. And that created an opportunity for some change and to shuffle the decks. And so um, Bernie brought on two young, new uh, pastors um, into the district office to try to shake some things up, uh, cause a bit of disturbance. And the first one you see is the tall gentleman right at the edge of the, the page there, kind of in the blue blazer, and that's uh, Jeremy Cook. Uh, Reverend Jeremy Cook is now our missions mobilizer and new ventures coordinator, assistant district superintendent by title. Um, and then at the back there, the guy striking the pose, you know, blue steel or magnum, whatever you want, that is... Uh, uh, that's me. Um, I look better in the picture than I do in real life, so I like to bring it around. Uh, but that is the updates from the District Ministry Center. We've shaken some things around, uh, divided and reconstituted some portfolios, and we're looking forward to moving forward together as a family of churches to take the hill country, to, to be engaged in the things that are hard but are worth doing because God is worth our effort. Um, and we are excited about the future of the district. Now, when Pastor Frank invited me to come and share with you, um, I asked him, well, what, what do you want me to speak on? And he says, well, you know, we're working through the fourfold gospel, but uh, you can talk about whatever, bring your district update, bring your district sermon. Uh, commonly known idea is that those of us who travel around from the district, we've got a sermon in our back pocket. And we preach the same sermon everywhere we go, and we get really good at it. And it's really easy. And I think he thought I would just do that. Um, I think he offered the slot to me, thinking, oh, that's the polite thing to do, but he probably won't take it. Um, but what he didn't know um, is that when you talk about the fourfold gospel, I'm a bit of an A.B. Simpson nerd. Um, I'm a bit of an alliance junkie, and the fourfold gospel is my jam. So I never pass up the opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ as our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and or coming King. And so I jumped at this chance. So thank you, Frank, for the opportunity to slot into your series 
Um, I am excited about talking to you about Jesus, um, our Savior. And let's see if this, will, there we go. Uh, so we come to the fourfold gospel. And you've heard about Jesus, our coming king already. You've heard about Jesus, our healer. And now we're going to talk about Jesus, our Savior. Now, the fourfold gospel is more than just a nice logo to slap on things. I've used a sticker to cover up the Apple on my laptop, and now it's a fourfold gospel computer. I hope it gets a few extra years of life uh, for doing that. Um, and it's more than just a catchy and memorable theological summary. It is the heart of what we understand the gospel message to be, though. Uh, you see, for A.B. Simpson and the Alliance, and by extension for us in this family of churches, uh, the gospel is not a series of truths about Jesus Christ, as though they exist outside of the person himself, outside of our relationship with them. Rather, the gospel is Jesus Christ. Full stop. Jesus is the gospel. We express that in four primary ways by talking about him as savior, sanctifier, healer, and coming king. And if my boss, Bernie Vandewall, was here, he would remind us that it is not an exhaustive list, but what he would term a mirrorism, a way of uh, including the totality of something by speaking of its limits. Um, he would say that uh, much as we would say, I searched high and low for something, includes not just looking at the top and the bottom of the closet, but everywhere in between. Um, the fourfold gospel speaks of the totality of the breadth of Jesus' ministry for us, and not just these four elements, although these four elements are significant. And perhaps nothing more significant and foundational than Jesus as our Savior. And so this morning, what I want to do in the time I have with you is to unpack one of those characteristics and attributes and talk about exactly what we mean when we say Jesus is Savior. And I want to do that from perhaps an unexpected passage, um, the story in Galatians chapter 2 that Pastor Frank read for us just a few moments ago. The confrontation that happens in Galatians 2 between Peter and Paul. I know you've heard of the rumble in the jungle, you've heard of the thriller in Manila, but have you heard of the altercation in Antioch? Because this is where the throwdown happens, and this is where we start to peel back the layers and understand exactly what Paul identifies as the gospel and how it pertains to us in the alliance and our understanding as Jesus as Savior. You have to understand that in the book of Galatians, Paul is setting up this entire letter as a defense of his apostolic authority um, and a polemic or an argument against the Judaizers. You read about some men from James came up. That's who Paul is talking about. Now, you may have heard that term Judaizers before in your reading of the New Testament. It was a group of Jews um, who didn't support the conclusion of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 that allowed Gentiles to become part of the church without first becoming Jews. To this group, to follow Christ apart from first becoming Jews made no sense because Christianity was first and foremost a Jewish sectarian movement rather than something new that God was doing unto itself. And so the idea that in any way you could decouple the Jewish faith from the proclamations of the gospel was heresy. 
So Paul spends most of chapter 1 in Galatians um, and much of the rest of the letter telling his story of being called by God and laying out his case for having the authority to correct these false doctrines and to point people along the right path toward Jesus as the only source of salvation. And the crowning point of this initial argument that he makes in the book of Galatians is this story about when he confronts Peter. Uh, New Testament uses the word Cephas, which was Peter's other name. It goes by, but we understand who we're talking about here. And this uh, account of conflict serves two purposes for this story. And it serves two purposes for Paul's argument. First, it asserts equivalency with, if not superiority over Peter, in authority to instruct and to proclaim this gospel of Jesus Christ. But second, it does so by way of an illustration of where that very false doctrine is being acted out. And so Paul not only gets to say, listen, Peter's good, but I've got something to say as well, and you need to listen to me. And by the way, let me show you why, because even Peter the self-proclaimed uh, apostles of the Gentiles, has missed the point here, let me correct you. And so he does that by kind of outlining in, in a roundabout way what salvation, first of all, is not. He points out the problem with what is happening with Peter. And as he goes and eats with this group from James and the Jews start to separate themselves from the Gentiles and divisions start to happen in the church, he says, no, 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 no. This is not how you become part of the church. This is, how we, this is not how we are in Christ together. This is not how we are saved. It is not by works. And you have to understand that fundamentally, this was the dispute between the Judaizers and the Gentiles. Because the Judaizers wanted the Gentiles to follow the works of the law. Primarily, there were, there were some really outward and important ones being circumcision and the dietary laws um, and the, the ritual observances. But they wanted the Gentiles to know they were saved by following the law. But we learn from Paul here that the gospel is not by works. Uh, anyone who's grown up in a Protestant church or church more broadly has probably heard that rallying cry. Salvation is not by works. It is not what we do that saves us, but what Christ has done for us that saves us. Salvation is not about being good enough, because I don't know if you checked your, uh, your scorecard lately, but you're not. I certainly am not good enough for Jesus. Um, we never can be. It's not about that, but it's about receiving the free gift of a God who took our sinfulness upon himself and imputed his righteousness to us so that we may stand before him justified because of his right behavior as we stand before the throne of God. But there is a nuance here that as right as we are in proclaiming this, we sometimes miss. Because we become dangerously wrong in that proclamation when we make works salvation a parody of what it is. And we turn it into a denunciation of all sorts of things like works righteousness. Uh, what I want to tell you, friends, as an aside here, so we don't get it wrong, is how we live our lives matters. It may not save us, but it shows that we are saved. 
Let me give you an illustration from modern life. I actually left my phone on the chair, so I can't hold it up for you, but imagine I'm holding up a phone before you, okay? I've got an iPhone, so you know what it looks like. Everyone knows what it looks like. Now, that phone is powered by a lithium-ion battery. Okay, we all know this. Um, let's pretend this is a phone because I'm holding something that looks weird if my hand is empty. It's powered by a lithium-ion battery, but what I can do with that is turn on the screen and spend hours and hours and hours watching cat videos. That's what we all do with our phones, we know, right? But even as you see me watching too many cat videos and start to question my life choices, you're not going to think that my phone is somehow powered by cats. My phone doesn't run on kitty power, though that is the new technology they're working on, I'm sure. It runs on the power that is in the battery. And if you go to turn on my screen and watch a cat video and it doesn't work, you don't think to yourself, well, there aren't enough cats in that phone. You think the power's not there. The battery must be dead, just like so many of our cars this morning. Okay? It's not running. And in the same way we talk about the, the work of salvation, it's not the works that we do, but the work Christ has done that powers it. And yet, if you can't see any works in the life of a believer, you have to wonder if there's any power in the battery, if there has been an acceptance of what Christ has done. Um... This is what I talk about when I, when I say works righteousness. And I think it's fitting that Paul builds and builds through Galatians to the, the crowning point near the end of the, the epistle that probably some of the first passages you might have learned as kids if you grew up in a church to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. What are the fruits of the Spirit? They are the evidences of what Christ has done in our lives. So when we say that salvation is not by works, it doesn't mean we don't do stuff. And if we're not doing stuff, that it's not a bad sign. It just means the power that we run on is not our own. It's what Christ has done in our lives. And so we say that salvation is not by works. And Paul makes this argument by rebuking Cephas and the men of James that come. But we have to understand that it's also not by faith in Christ alone. Not by the power of our faith at least. And here I'm going to be very, very careful because this can be taken the wrong way, but to hear it the right way is so, so crucial. There is a phrase in the Greek that repeats itself a number of times in this passage. And I'll just give you the Greek. I don't expect you to explain it because I don't remember half of it myself. Pistis Christu. Okay? Faith of, in, by Christ. Okay? We render it in the NIV, which we heard read this morning, as faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. And that's good, because it teaches us that we need to believe that Jesus has done the work for us. Right? That's a good thing. That's a right thing. But sometimes we take it at that and we miss the deeper, more fundamental meanings of what that actually says. There has been a debate over the last 40 years or so. It's been going on since the New Testament was written, but it's been reanimated in the last 40 years or so by a scholar named Richard Hayes who argued that pistis Christu probably means, in, in a fuller sense, the faithfulness of Christ rather than faith in Christ. And that's not to, to, to deny that faith in Christ is important, but it misses the robustness of what Paul is talking about here. 
Because it's not because I believe enough that I am saved. I don't believe and therefore I am saved. I believe in Jesus who saves me. It is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to be obedient to the call of God, to die on the cross for my sins, to rise from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to reign in the universe for all eternity. That is my hope of salvation. Not that I believe in that thing. You know, it would be easy to reject a works salvation. Say, I don't get saved because I, I follow dietary laws or I'm a good person or I follow the Jewish code of circumcision. That's not what saves me. And at the same time, believe wholeheartedly in my heart that it's because I believe enough that makes me saved. We sang a song just before Frank came up to do the announcements. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the center That's what Paul is saying here. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is what saves us. Not holiness codes, not ritual observance, not the law, the Torah, but Jesus himself. And when I first heard this new rendering of Pistis Christu, the faithfulness of Christ, I thought as a young pastor, oh my, this is revelatory. It finally makes sense of what I'm reading from Paul. And then I realized much later in my life, and maybe a bit to my shame, that it wasn't really new. Maybe it had been rearticulated um, in, in that generation. But A.B. Simpson was all over this as he was talking about the formation of the fourfold gospel. He was all over this, of Christ being the center of it all, about all being about Jesus. And our legacy in the Christian and Missionary Alliance is a theology that is based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to hear something radical that will freak people out, you need to read A.B. Simpson in his magnum opus sermon himself, which is kind of the foundation of, of what became the fourfold gospel and kind of spurned the birth of the Christian and missionary alliance. In that sermon, he says something that, outside of the context we've shared this morning, could be interpreted as scandalous. He describes faith in Christ as an obstacle for him for the, from the power of Christ finding a place in his life. In that famous sermon, he tells the story about his, how his pursuit of a deeper and greater faith to believe in Jesus actually became an idol. It became a striving in his life that pulled him away from Christ and led him to seek power in his own strength. Sounds a lot like works righteousness for, to me, just in your head instead of in your hands. He says, um, never mind, he, he writes um, after feeling that he's been defeated, God speaks to him and says, never mind my child, Uh, you have nothing, but I am perfect power. This is Jesus speaking to him. I am perfect love, I am faith, I am your life, I am the preparation for the blessing, and then I am the blessing too. No salvation that is wrought by my capacity to believe enough in something is any better than my salvation being wrought by my capacity to do enough of something. Salvation necessarily, for it to be centered on Jesus, has to be about something bigger than me. Bigger than what I can do. 
It has to be about more than human will, whether that is physical or intellectual. It has to be about Jesus. And the good news that we proclaim when we talk about the fourfold gospel is that it is. It is always and only and fundamentally and totally about Jesus. To put it simply, or I may say Simpsonly, um, Jesus Christ is salvation. It is the fullness of Jesus Christ to the, sorry, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to the Father in the Holy Spirit and for us that is the essence of salvation. Not my ability or capacity to believe in that fundamental truth, but Jesus and Jesus alone. And when I mean that I say that Jesus is salvation, not just our our Savior, that's an important distinction. Because the catchy version of the fourfold gospel, the one that you've probably memorized um, as you've paid so much attention these last two two Sundays to Pastor... um, Pastor Frank, as he's been talking about it, is that Jesus Christ is Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. It kind of rolls off the tongue. And that's good, because he is all those things. But if you go beyond the slogan, sorry, I keep hitting my collar with this. If you go beyond the slogan, and into what Simpson and the Alliance have traditionally taught on this matter, you will realize that Jesus is necessarily so much more than just the delivery guy who brings salvation to us. He's not like the pizza man who shows up when you order on skip the dishes and brings you salvation because you dialed the right number or entered the right uh, coupon code. He is what arrives at the door. He is salvation himself. Simpson goes on to say, salvation gives us grace to live day by day. A man may be pardoned and so get out of prison um, and yet have no money to supply his needs. He is pardoned, yet he is starving. Salvation takes us out of prison, we get that part, and then provides all our needs besides. This quote in many ways summarizes the way Simpson understood salvation. It is not an achieved status that is merely won for us um, by Christ It is not simply the removal of guilt um, that the believer has by Christ. Nor it is simply the removal of sin that impeded the believer from being in the holy presence of God. Rather, for Simpson and for the Alliance, and to understand the fourfold gospel, salvation is union with Christ himself. He is the object and not just the means of salvation. To say it another way, if somebody won't have Jesus, no matter what they believe, they won't have salvation. Jesus is salvation. For Simpson, then, we could read that salvation is not primarily about escaping punishment, it's not about dodging the consequences. The Alliance doesn't preach a gospel of fire insurance, the Alliance preaches a gospel of finding Jesus. Salvation is union with Christ. When, when Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, one of Simpson's favorite passages, that it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not just another clever turn of phrase. It's the essence of the gospel. That salvation is Christ. And we experience salvation when Christ is in us. 
There must be an apprehension of Jesus, our Savior, Simpson says. The soul must see him as both able and willing to say it, save. It will not do to merely feel and confess your guilt. What is needed is Jesus. And so we come back to this idea of faith in Christ. What is salvation in the end? And you may think, Chris, this is just a matter of semantics. You're splitting hairs. And friends, I need to say to you, if you've never had the opportunity to struggle in your faith and your belief in God, yeah, it's probably just semantics. If your life has been charmed and easy and you've never really faced crisis, yeah, it's probably just semantics. You can just go on believing in Jesus and it's all good. But if your journey with Christ has been characterized by perhaps um, hardships, challenges, crises, turmoil, trial, doubt, pain, this sort of thing matters a lot more. Because I tell you from experience as a pastor walking with people who are broken and experience as a person walking as a broken person in seasons of my life, that it's sometimes hard to muster the sort of faith that one might consider to be saving. It's sometimes hard to believe and not to doubt to believe and not hold bitterness. And then if your entire belief in how you are saved comes down to how hard you believe or how accurately you trust in Jesus, you're not going to be in for a good time. But if your faith is in Christ, if it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ himself that is salvation, well, that can weather a lot of storms. That can weather a lot of hardships. His shoulders are big enough to carry a lot of doubts and a lot of questions that maybe go unanswered for long periods of time. If salvation is Jesus, well, then the pressure's kind of off, isn't it? Because it's not about us. It's not about what we do. It's not about how perfectly we believe. It's about Jesus. For A.B. Simpson and the Christian and Missionary Alliance throughout history, salvation is not merely the blotting out of transgression and the declaration of guiltlessness, but it is something much more. It is trusting in the work of Christ and experiencing it through the union of Christ and the believer in a way that provides tangible, positive benefits to the person. That quote I read earlier about being let out of prison, Simpson's metaphor of, of being pardoned is key. If someone won't have Jesus, the cell may be unlocked. They may be pronounced free, but they're not experiencing freedom. They're not experiencing life. Salvation is always and only about getting Jesus. Now, none of that is to say that you're a passive recipient here. Faith must be received. 
None of this broadening of the definition of pistis Christu undoes the plain definition. We do need to believe in Christ. But it doesn't hinge on our belief. The work of God must be appropriated in some way. It is fully the work of Jesus Christ, but if you don't take hold of it, it remains a perfect and sufficient and yet unopened gift. It's like a gourmet meal laid before a person who is starving and yet refuses to eat. It makes no sense, but we've all known people who have done it. And yet at the same time, it doesn't mean that you need to dig in and eat it all and clear your plate and ask for seconds. You pick away at the broccoli. You kind of taste the mashed potatoes. You can tell I've got kids, right? Um, you, know, you separate the meat from the vegetables and you get one chicken nugget down at the end of the meal. It's not going to nourish you the way it should and there's a lot more there for you, but you've taken the meal. You've received a gift that was given to you free of charge. It's Christ's faithfulness. You can receive it with doubt. You can receive it with skepticism. You can receive it without all your questions being answered. Because it's not about you. It's about Jesus and what he's done. All you need to do is receive it. It's like what he says to John in the third chapter of Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's interesting in that quote, there's no kind of caveat on whether the house is clean. No kind of caveat on what sort of snacks you have out. No kind of caveat on whether you're a good conversationalist or even whether you've prepared anything for your guest. All you got to do is open the door. Jesus comes in and does the work. And I believe next Sunday you're going to talk about sanctification and the work that Jesus does in us, the renovation he does in our hearts. Um, and I was going to leave it there because Pastor Frank's going to have some really cool things to say about that. But what's important is opening the door, letting Jesus in. Because salvation is not about what you do. It's not about the quality or how hard you believe. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ because he is salvation himself. Not the deliverer of salvation, not the messenger of salvation. He is salvation. I want to leave you this morning with that kind of mic drop moment. Oh, sorry, I missed that one. But also probably my favorite Simpson quote. And one that I think summarizes what Jesus is in the fourfold gospel probably better than the other quote I've read. He says, this is eternal life. Not that you go to heaven someday. That's a benefit of salvation. But that you should know Christ. Eternal life is Jesus himself. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the center of it all. Lord, even as we sang earlier this morning, um, that even our praise is your breath in our lungs. It's you. From beginning to end, it's you, Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not about us. It's 
not about me. What I've done, how perfectly I believe, it's about reaching out in desperation to the one who has done it all and is salvation. Oh Lord, my prayer is not that this is a congregation full of people in person or online who would one day go to heaven. But my prayer is that they would be a people who would know Christ. Because you, Jesus Christ, are salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen.